Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sam Galvano. Dr. Galvano is the Chief of the Division of Critical Care Medicine and the Associate Medical Director of the SICU. Um, Dr. Galvano has somehow figured out a way to uh, get 30 hours out of normal, the normal 24-hour day somehow. Looking at his CV, it's absolutely ridiculous <laughs> like how he's accomplished as much as he has. But just to give you a little bit of background, um, he got his... Uh, a medical degree at New York College of Osteopathic Medicine. Um, went to uh, Brigham and Women's for a uh, residency in anesthesia. Um, he followed up with his PhD in clinical investigation under his thesis advisor's uh, advisor, Peter Pronovost, and actually ended up publishing, Sam uh, first authored in, in JAMA on the topic of hel helicopter emergency uh, medical services for trauma patients. He um, followed up further, I guess, at that time with the Masters of Science. He's um, uh, done critical care as well. He's just uh, done it all. He has over 60 publications. He's um, uh, won multiple awards in teaching, and it's just an absolute uh, pleasure to have here. So thanks, Sam. OK, thanks, Mike. That's it. That's it. We're done. <laughs> Let's just make sure this works. Uh, I can switch over anytime to the try to use. Okay, there we go. We're a little cut off at the bottom, but I think this will work. All right, everybody. Well, good to see everyone. I think I know most of you pretty well. Uh, the good news is this is a pretty brief talk. Uh, I've been trying to go a little shorter and more succinct. I think that's the way most of us are trying to go with uh, education nowadays. But it's, it's jam-packed with a lot of uh, details that we can delve into some more. There's, uh, the main topic here is going to be patient ventilator interactions, and I want to give you some actual cases that we've had where that's become a, a pretty profound concern. And specifically, I wanted to add in a segment on post-intubation hypotension. I know that that can be actually a whole other talk, but I want to give some some of my uh, feelings about that, and as well as some of the literature, because I believe that that's related to the ventilator as much as it is to your induction agents. And we have other talks that we've had with this program on induction agents. Our objectives will be to talk about some of the physiologic consequences associated with initiation and mechanical ventilation, predominantly in hypovolemic trauma patients. But I would argue this is applicable for all of our ICU patients. The principles are applicable. We'll talk about some of the risks and benefits of instituting mechanical ventilation, especially in patients with underlying cardiac disease, and then talk about management plans that can be employed in the critical care setting so that we can avoid hypotension in mechanically ventilated patients. Uh, I really don't have any disclosures that are related to this talk whatsoever. Let's talk about the physiology a little bit. So when we institute mechanical ventilation, we initiate mechanical ventilation, this is a big event. This isn't just, um, I know we see this as a beneficial event, but we have to keep in mind that what we're doing with this is completely reversing the patient's physiology. Normal intrathoracic pressure zero. We put a patient on the ventilator. I'm talking full support or some mode of full support. And what we're doing is we're basically reversing their physiology. It's a complete reversal of physiology. During normal breathing, our intrathoracic pressure is about zero, right? Uh, our intrathoracic pressure and even our right atrial pressure increases once we start positive pressure ventilation. 
So this is a big event. And this gets to the point of when you start mechanical ventilation, you can actually, you can actually kill somebody. You can actually kill somebody with a ventilator. And we've all probably uh, seen instances where that's been the case. So this is a modality that has to be used judiciously. So I have a couple of, the first one's a primitive one. The second animation is much better. I think you'll like that one better. But there's two concepts to illustrate when we put someone on the ventilator in terms of the effect on preload and afterload. Let's talk about afterload first. So this is a very, I'm gonna warn you, this is a very primitive animation that I made, but I think it'll hopefully make the point. Let me get it to play here. Let's go, okay. So with positive pressure ventilation, we get afterload reduction. And the mechanism by which that occurs is that, well, first of all, your left ventricle has to overcome two pressures, your systemic resistance, which is mainly measured, it could be measured at the aortic pressure, and plus the negative pressure in the thoracic cavity. So when you institute positive pressure ventilation, what's happening here is you get some degree of negative pressure that pulls the LV outwards, but you also get surrounding positive pressure ventilation, which I'm try I tried to illustrate in this primitive animation, which can help eject the blood out. So we'll re let me revisit this with a couple other diagrams, but I think this is super important because uh, I know you see a lot more of this in the, for those of you that work in the MICU pre predominantly, and actually in the emergency department, but patient comes in with acute CHF, one of the first interventions that can be extremely beneficial is to get them on some BiPAP. And it's not just because your oxygen level may be teetering around 90, it's really to help with this afterload reduction or even intubating them. So this is, an, this is the case where this can be very beneficial and we'll illustrate this in just a little bit with a, an actual case that we had. So afterload reduction is one of the interactions that you have when you put someone on the ventilator. That, that can be good most of the time. And this is just another uh, schematic. By the way, this is actually an article by Guyette and he's the founder of Evidence-Based Medicine based up in Canada. One of his early publications, though, was talking about the mechanism of afterload reduction on mechanical ventilation. So at, 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 pure, at heart, he's a bit of an intensivist, which is pretty cool. So this is the transmural pressure. It's normally about 120. This is when you're breathing, all of us are breathing normally with a negative intrapleural pressure. Now we pressurize the thorax that drops our transmural pressure. Again, that positive pressure ventilation, there's a drop of about 40. And that could, if you measure the transmural pressure, which we don't measure clinically, but if you were to measure this experimentally, you're going to see it drop dram pretty dramatically. So again, this is a mechanism of afterload reduction. That can be good. It can be good. There's other consequences, though, to putting somebody on the ventilator. And let's talk about hypovolemia. So this is a little bit of a slicker. I've integrated some of the aspects of the Edwards stuff as well as some other um, tidbits to this. So with venous return, I think we all understand venous return, uh, the formula really for that is going to be your mean systemic pressure minus your right atrial pressure. I think we're all comfortable with that formula. It's a really important formula though, because when we induce somebody and we're intubating them, going to intubate them, a couple things, there's a couple things we, where we can fall off the tracks. One, our medications can certainly do this. Do you see how that IVC is just collapsing? If they're already hypovolemic, and we give them an agent that drops their systemic vascular resistance, such as, what's one of the most prevalent medications you see for us inducing with? Uh, propofol. 
Propofol is one of our more prevalent medications because, again, it's in that yellow box. We don't have to control it yet, so it's readily available. But propofol is a really bad SVR reducer. So that's what can happen is you can completely collapse down uh, and have an abrupt arterial and venous dilatation. And that drops your mean systemic pressure very, very abruptly. And your unstressed volume in your body remains underfilled. And so this can lead to cardi complete cardiovascular collapse. Even a very small amount of propofol can be enough to push them over the edge. But if it's not the propofol, if it's not the propofol or if it's not another agent that's not used judiciously, then what can happen is in a hypovolemic patient, you can wind up still pushing them over the edge. You won't see it though for a couple minutes until they go on the ventilator. And that's the point is the positive pressure ventilation, as you can see in this diagram, without doing anything, if a patient's hypovolemic, it's going to decrease their preload. That's setting them up for a decreased preload, uh, really an unstressed uh, system that's going to be underfilled that you're now putting positive pressure on. So after load reduction can be good in certain cases, maybe not so good in some other cases, but that's certainly an effect of positive pressure ventilation. The other effect is that this can reduce your preload which is really huge, and we'll see some examples in just a few minutes. So let me, let me just harp on, so one of my areas of, uh, my areas that I really enjoy uh, both practicing and in doing research, practicing when I can, um, is pre-hospital medicine and trying to bring critical care into the pre-hospital arena. Specifically, uh, using the helicopter as a modality is, is uh, one of my areas of interest. One of the raging debates that we continue to revisit over and over again is post-intubation hypotension. The question becomes, is it the drugs? And I think a lot of folks have focused on the drugs. Is it the neuromuscular blocker? Is it the induction agent? Again, we've had a talk about this in this program, and you can revisit that online, and we can talk about it some more. What I'd like to focus on today, though, is I think one of the factors in post-intubation hypotension, and I, I use the pre-hospital environment as an example, but it's no, really no different than our critical care environment. These are the same sick patients. We just get to them earlier in the pre-hospital environment. But if they're hypovolemic or there's something going on that we uh, need to know about or don't know about and we start positive pressure ventilation, that can be very harmful. And so there's a whole plethora of articles that get into this. Um, and we've, we've countered and tried to counteract these because I think all of these papers, including one that was done in shock trauma here, 2003 have shown deleterious effect with field intubation. So I think one of the factors, it's not the only factor, but one of the, and there's a lot of neurologic stuff. So I know Sarah appreciate that, and some of our, some of our fellow neurocritical care colleagues. You know, TBI, uh, these are not patients that we can, uh, we want to mess around with. We want to do the right thing by them. So uh, if putting an ET tube is really harmful, that's probably something we need to look at. And, and indeed, there's, there's stuff in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest as well as patients with TBI where it shows intubation uh, being independently associated with uh, badness, bad outcomes. But I think one of the factors that's not discussed is the whole role of positive pressure ventilation. And so not all these patients are going on a ventilator. It's not going to be tweaked. They're usually getting bagged. And they're usually getting bagged pretty aggressively. And we have no idea what tidal volume we're really giving. But I guarantee you, in most cases, and I know I've been guilty of this because your adrenaline's flowing, you're in the field, you're not in a really controlled environment. We're definitely giving more than six, eight, probably closer to 10 to 12 mils per kg, just like back in the 80s, right, before we learned how to protect the lung. 
So my argument here, and, and maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think we need to look at this in the literature, is that I think you have to look at the role of positive pressure ventilation. It's not just about the drugs, it's certainly about the technique. If you miss the airway, yeah, that's obvious, that's not good. But in a high performing system, such as here in Maryland, where our medics really don't miss much, uh, less than 2%, less than one, almost 1%, then it really becomes an issue of, well, what else is going on physiologically? And my argument is that I think it's the positive pressure ventilation is part of this problem, part of it, um, especially in the field. And there's, there's some literature to support this. So here's some of the literature. First of all, in, in ICUs and in pre-hospital medicine, you're gonna see a really wide incidence of post-intubation hypotension, up to 60%. I don't know if it's that high in this, what do, you, what do you folks think it is here? It's definitely probably above 10% here. And I'm talking significant hypotension. I'm dropping the map less than 50, almost coding. I, I would agree with this here. I think even when we try to do our best job, we're going to see some degree of hypotension. The question is, how bad is it going to be? And how bad is that hypotension going to impact flow? Hypotension does not necessarily equal poor flow or male perfusion. But in a lot of these patients, it, it, it does. It's the best marker we've got immediately to work on. So the incidence is quite high post-intubation hypotension. Um, is it the neuromuscular blocker or is it just pre-existing hypotension? So this is one study where they had 147 patients. I won't go into the details of it, but they did find an independent association and it's, it's, it's tough to interpret that with such a small number. This odds ratio is very inflated by, as evidenced by the confidence interval here, one to almost 6.5, over 6.5. But the neuromuscular blocker did come out. And, and the question here is, well, what's, what about the neuromuscular blocker? Is that taking away the sympathetic drive somewhat? Maybe. Um, is it impacting the peripheral circulation in some, in some regard? Is it dropping SVR? Well, that can happen with neuromuscular blockers, certainly. Uh, it's not necessarily a direct effect. And then pre-existing low blood pressures is clearly a risk factor, but I don't think we needed a study to tell us that. And in fact, if you look at other literature, this is another uh, developed system in Charlotte where they looked at almost, well, they looked at 465 patients and they found the shock index. Now, I really like the shock index. And I don't know how much, do you, use, do you folks use the shock index much in your practice? It's a little hard to, you have to calculate it, heart rate divided by blood pressure. We do have our continuous vital signs monitoring, which is accessible in this institution to everybody, so you can track it over time. I think that's extraordinarily helpful. So I watch that at home when I'm on call all the time, and I'm always looking at that. But it's not that hard to calculate. And it, you know, if you're, your patient's kind of teetering on the edge, you can probably do the quick math and figure out their shock index is probably high. So this is a patient with a borderline systolic and maybe a heart rate that's in the low 100s. That's probably gonna be a shock index greater than 0.8, roughly, okay? Even better, if you use the mean systolic, the, 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 um, the MSI, that's the, the uh, shock index using the MAP as your denominator, the mean arterial pressure, and that's been shown to be even more sensitive and specific uh, for predicting post-intubation hypotension. So this is common sense, but I think it's something we have to be attentive to. Just like we talk about with pre-oxygenation in intubation and putting somebody on them, starting initiating mechanical ventilation, we want to try to avoid hypoxemia. There's lots of things we can do nowadays to do that. We've talked about that. But I think also if they're hypotense, there's no good reason to think that they're going to suddenly get better when we try to intubate them. In fact, most of the time, according to the literature and our own experience, they're going to get worse. Um, so again, could it be the drugs? Is it the positive pressure ventilation? I think all these factors have to be taken into consideration. 
And so um, there's a couple things we can do to prevent this before we get into some, you know, some pa patient ventilator interactions here. So uh, a couple things that are interesting. Uh, how many of you use remifentanil? Probably not many of you. Oh, okay, okay, you're, but you're from a country that supports that, right? Okay, so we have this here. Uh, I get in trouble for it because I have to go downstairs to the OmniCell to get it. The main disadvantage to remifentanil is cost. It's about $57. I just checked with Mernaz not too long ago. So in our institution, it's about $57 a vial. And that's for two grams of remi, or two milligrams rather, of remifentanil. Here's the thing with remifentanil. Ultra-potent opioid, 250 times more powerful than an equianalgesic dose of morphine. So this is a super potent opioid. And it's super short-acting. And it's also broken down by esterases. So after about eight minutes, it's gone. You can have renal failure, you can have liver failure, it doesn't matter. It's gonna be broken down by esterases and it will be out of the system. So they looked at this, they compared it with a neuromuscular blocker, they compared it plus or minus propofol. This is a forearm RCT, it's a small study, not the biggest study. Um, but what they found in this study was that when you get, in the, and they also looked at some of the dosing of remifentanil, so that's why I put four up there, four mics per kilogram. They found really good stability when they intubated with this and very good and int excellent intubating conditions in all patients at that dose. So this is something to consider if you've got a meta-unstable patient, you've got a patient with a high shock index, you're going to start positive pressure ventilation, you need that for other pathophysiology that you're trying to concomitantly address. You might want to start thinking about how you're actually going to induce them and, and, and lead them into, gently lead them into uh, positive pressure ventilation, okay? so. That's one thing. Um, another thing you can think about is pre-medication with fentanyl. So we do this in the operating room all the time. There's two different regimens, and one quick way to remember it is three to two to one, or one to one to one. That just gives you the doses. And the first one in fentanyl is, <clears throat> excuse me, it's always mics per kilogram, but ketamine and rock are milligrams per kilogram. So you know, if you're not sure the three to two to one versus one to one to one, and you've got these drugs immediately available, the, the problem is ketamine. Ketamine is not readily available in a lot of our units. I think it should be. I think it's a really good induction agent. We've talked about that. But this is another tactic you can use to, again, bring the patient into the, the positive pressure ventilation uh, more uh, swiftly and safely. Okay? So uh, this isn't a drug talk. And ketamine has a lot of great effects. In fact, uh, less myocardial depression than, we, than you probably have read about in the textbooks and as well as... Uh, far less AV dissociation and arrhythmias. So not a bad drug to consider. Okay, so some other things real quickly uh, to prevent. So I think, you know, one of the things when we, walk, when we roll up on the scene, uh, I think most of you know this already, we want to have a free-flowing IV. It's not just so we can give the drugs rapidly. That's certainly, obviously, uh, very important. But it's also because if we need to give any volume, you, you really need to have that, that available. That's really important, I would argue. And we're going to show a case where that can be life-saving uh, or detrimental to a patient outcome. Awake intubation is a whole other talk. I have my technique that I like for it. I think you've had some stuff, uh, Dr. McCurdy's had some people talk about this. This is a technique that uh, people are often afraid of, but once you get it down, it's nothing to be afraid of. So this, this actually is nice because it takes away a lot of the hemodynamic consequences of our drugs. And, and, and you're, now you can really isolate whether or not it's just the positive pressure ventilation that may be causing your problem in many cases if it's done correctly. 
So I, I'm a big fan of awake intubation if you're on the edge. There's lots of great ways to do that. Uh, if you want to email me offline, I'll send you my protocol that I use, which I've had extremely good success with. Having a pure vasoconstrictor ready. So now we're lucky that most of our yellow boxes in this hospital have sticks of phenylephrine. But if you don't have that, what else can you use? And I've done this. I've done this not frequently, thank goodness, but, but I've had to do this. What else can we use? If we're in the bedside, uh, you know, what's, what's, a, what's a vasoconstrictor that we almost always have very handy nearby? We have norepi, yeah. I, I, the problem with norepi is it's a little difficult and, uh, to draw out and dilute properly, and you have to look at the concentration, but certainly you can, use, you can use push norepi. That's one possibility. And you're right, it is very prevalent. Uh, a lot of these patients may already be on it, so that's one thing you can consider. Don't forget about epi. I mean, if you're really circling the drain and this patient's crashing hard, and you want to try to get a little bit of that stressed, unstressed volume, whatever little bit left you got in the splanchnics, um, maybe some more, you know, as well as the inotropy and, and certainly the alpha, a little bit of epi's not a bad idea. So you can actually dilute that down from a regular stick, one milligram of epinephrine, and I've done that. I've had to do that because we didn't have phenylephrine available. But nowadays, I almost always have a pure vasoconstrictor on every airway call I go to, uh, to try to really attenuate the hypotension. And then starting the mechanical ventilation, if you're not sure, and this is a really unstable patient, I tell you, in trauma, oftentimes we jump right to 10 of PEEP. So maybe think about, I wouldn't say zero, actually. Not, I, I'm, I, I think five of PEEP is reasonable to start. But another thing that's really reasonable is to really try to dial in early with that predicted body weight of six to eight, preferably lower. So starting with a low tidal volume and a reasonable PEEP, then that's going to hopefully take the positive pressure out of the, the equation. But if we just go in like gangbusters, start bagging aggressively, it's an emergency situation, the patient's ready to crash, then I think you're going to start to see some of the effects that we'll talk about here uh, with that excessive tidal volume. It's just something we have to be ultra cognizant about. When we're leading these resuscitations, and even if we're not intubating or controlling the airway, we need to lead the, lead the sequence of events. And part of that is being very judicious with the ventilator and, and dialing that into the right settings to start with. So I've, I've found this to be very successful. This, these four bullet points have uh, really helped me um, avoid patients that require a little bit of CPR after being intubated. We've all seen that. That's not something you want, right? Or crashing really hard. So think about these things. Okay. Um, a couple other things. Let's go right into some cases. So I think I've got four cases for you. These are real patients, all right? Um, and some of, this, some of this will be transitioning just to the very the first case. I want to just do a general review of kind of troubleshooting the ventilator. Um, just some really basic stuff, okay? 82-year-old woman, alcohol abuse, uh, history of spinal stenosis, cerebral atrophy. She's transferred for an esophageal perf. So she gets on the unit. She's, she arrives, and not too long after, her peak airway pressure is about 15. The alarm's going off. You're called to the room. What's your differential diagnosis of that? Predominantly, what I want to focus in on here is that low peak airway pressure. What the heck's going on with this patient, do you think? Any thoughts? What mode is she on? Um, yeah, OK. Uh, fair question. <laughs> uh, let's just say that we put her on com just assist control, uh, four, 400 tidal volume. She's really small. And rate of 12, PEEP of 5. Good question, though. So pretty standard kind of wimpy settings. It's not, she, she's, 
isn't requiring a lot of vent support, but clearly can't, is not thriving off the ventilator, so she's on the, needs the ventilator, but, uh, but why, peak, low peak airway pressure, what can cause that? There's not that many things, that's the, good, that's the good news, right? A low peak airway pressure has, I would argue, a much shorter di differential diagnosis, right? So what are some things that could be causing that? <laughs> okay, <laughs> well that's what she had, and that's what we think was contributing, but you're, so you got it. All right, so that, that's, that's actually it. And I'll be honest, I changed the numbers a little bit to kind of emphasize this. I mean, if you, you know, bronchopleural fistula, you shouldn't really, I mean, you could. She actually did have a pretty significant leak, and, and this is not good, but you, you got it. I mean, her history is there. What else can cause a low peak airway pressure, though? Yeah, so I think you have to troubleshoot the equipment, right? And one good way is always to work back from the patient to the ventilator or vice versa. Most of us start with the patient and work back to the ventilator. But that's almost always either an equipment issue or it's a leak in the system is the way to think about it. I think that's the best way to think about it. So um, uh, this is, Dr. Marino has a way that he really kind of makes this much simpler. And I kind of like his approach. We can add le levels to this for sure, okay? Uh, but if you're going to just break it down and you're coming into the room and it's 3 a.m. and you're, you're awfully tired and you don't have that many neurons left to really process things, if you focus on your peak airway pressure and your plateau pressure as your first two parameters, you're going to get to an answer pretty quickly, I would argue. Okay? Peak airway pressure, just as a reminder, I think globally you can think airways resistance and elastance. Plateau pressure is really a combination of all that, but really it's it's, it's a little bit more of a measure of compliance. So if you look at this proportionally, and, and you remember, you measure that by including the tube at end inspiration, that tends to be a board question every now and then. Uh, fresh off my uh, um, recent jaunt down to Raleigh where we were writing the exam, and I can tell you that this is the type of thing that they like you to be able to recognize, how to perform that maneuver and measure it. And just as a reminder, this is what the pressure time curve is going to look like, okay? And we're going to go over some of these in a minute, which I think you'll find helpful. But this is Dr. Marino's algorithm, and it hasn't changed since 2007. And, you know, it's a little bit simplistic. I think for this audience, there's, there's some other things we can add to this. But if you just take it by respiratory deterioration, call to the bedside, your peak airway pressure. So you see note, right, right away, if it's decreased, and that's the main alarm you're getting, check your circuits and try to understand where's the air leak. There's got to be an air leak here somewhere. Almost always it's the tubing, I would argue, or some leak in the system. So once you troubleshoot that, the other problems are all going to be related to increased peak airway pressure, right? So then you get into, okay, well, what's going on now? That's where I think the plateau pressure can be pivotal. So if you can get a quick plateau pressure, then if that's increased proportionally, they're both going to go together. But if the plateau pressure is really, really high, I'm talking like in the 40s and your peak airway pressure is proportionally higher than that, then you want to start thinking, okay, what's hurting my compliance? This is mostly a compliance issue, most likely. And that's our differential there. Not uncommon to see a pneumothorax that was small and grew overnight on positive pressure ventilation maybe, or just got worse, that needs to be treated. Or pulmonary edema that's getting worse. Auto-peep, abdominal distension. These are all things that can impact our compliance, right? Abdominal distension is a big one in our patient population, our surgical population, because this can be one of the first warning signs we have of a compartment syndrome going on, right? So that's really important. So I really pay attention to these numbers, and I ask for them. I know they're not consistently documented in our flow sheets all the time, but I think these are really important things. If the plateau pressure is 
you know, maybe a little bit elevated, but your peak airway pressure is really what's really dinging you for a high level, that, that, that also has a pretty short differential, okay? Bronchospasm secretions, ET tube obstructions. I know this stuff is all a review. I would submit to this audience that when you're teaching the medical students, residents, and other folks who aren't as comfortable with the ventilators, this is a good place to start. Help them learn this algorithm and understand it, and, and this can help with troubleshooting the ventilator. I think it's a very simple approach. Okay, let's go to another case. So what do you think about this one? This is a 39-year-old woman. She's got a postpartum hemorrhage. So they took care of that. She comes into your unit. She's got a very irregular and rapid respiratory rate, and her flow time curve is demonstrated here. How do you know, first of all, that that's a flow time curve? How do you know that? Any ideas? So whenever you have a ventilator, this is not just for exams, but in life. So whenever we throw one of these pictures at you and you start to get intimidated by it, just look at the axes. So if right off the bat, that's liters per minute. That's got to be flow, right? And it's going sequentially. It's not a loop. So that's got to be time. So flow time curve, okay? So what are you seeing here? Is it the best example? Probably not. I'll, I'll say that up front, but it's one of the quickest ones I can, you know, it's actually a, it's actually a real curve. What, what are you seeing here that's concerning? What if I were to tell you now the blood pressure is dropping rapidly, the patient's sat is dropping, this patient is ready to crash? Okay, why do you say that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good, good. So I think this is an example of breath stacking, auto peep. Now, is there anyone here who doesn't believe in auto peep? Dr. Marino doesn't believe in it, believe in it. He's one of my mentors. He doesn't believe that this ever exists or it ever happens. I totally disagree with him. This, this absolutely does happen. It happens in patients that are floridly delirious, that are totally asynchronous with the ventilator. This was a young patient. This is an actual case. This is an actual case that we took care of. Uh, she's young. I mean, she didn't like being on the ventilator. She's starting to get better. She wasn't really sedated very well, and she's extremely tachypnic, and she was just stacking her breasts on top of each other and starting to circle the drain slowly, then rapidly. So here's some things. Um, this is a question that comes up that people ask. And so, um, so here's a couple things that we can look at to diagnosis on the vent. So uh, first of all, you mentioned, can you repeat your... Uh, your diagnosis on that flow time curve, you, what did you see? You didn't see return to? Yeah, yeah, so that's one of the earliest ones you might see. Uh, sometimes to see that, it, it can be a little bit subtle. It may just be, it may take time to develop and get worse, but then it gets really bad if it's not taken care of. But that's actually one of the ones. Let me give you a couple of other uh, pictures here that can uh, illustrate this. So one is the pressure time curve. So again, Y-axis, X-axis, pressure over time. It's not cyclic, so you know that that's got to be time. If they don't give you that on an exam, they're meanies, and they don't give you uh, the, the units, you can pretty much figure that part out, right? But this is one of the ways you can determine or detect auto-peep, and you can see that, um, that there can be some air trapping because they're, not, they're, they're steadily increasing above that baseline there, okay, where the set peep level is. And you can see that really nicely on a pressure time curve. The other one, um, another one is a flow wave, which we just saw. This is just a little bit more of in-depth, but you, you, you hit it on the head when you said it's not a return to baseline. There's air trapping. 
They're not able to exhale. So here's the problem with breath stacking or auto peep. When we normally exhale, we exhale down to hopefully somewhat close to our functional residual capacity or FRC. When you don't give yourself enough time to exhale, you're exhaling above your FRC. So now your FRC is inappropriately, I wouldn't say high, okay? So you're, you're stacking on top of that and not exhaling down to your normal FRC. So that's what's really going on here. And if you go back to that video, that animation I showed, you can imagine the hemodynamic consequences. Your IVC starts to get cut off. The chest becomes more and more pressurized. Yeah, initially we might get that afterload reduction, but then over time, that's gonna really cut off our preload to the heart in a bad way, and these patients will crash. So this is one other way you can see it. Another way you can see it, I wanna give you multiple ways to see this. So you can actually go to the RTs, the respiratory therapists, and say, hey, I wanna, uh, are they auto-peeping? And then you can stand at the bedside and speak this conversation very intelligently with them by looking at all the vent waveforms. So the other one is, again, this is another picture of a flow uh, time curve as well as a volume time curve. And again, you can see that lack of return to baseline. And this is another one that we see on board exams, less in real life, although I will tell you if you see me in the, in the uh, operating room, on almost every patient that I'm mechanically ventilating, if I'm doing the anesthesia, in the anesthesia world, I will have a flow volume loop up on that ventilator because I think it's very helpful to, to track changes. Um, and so this is another way you can see that with your inspiratory, expiratory limbs. And depending on how you configure it, what you are going to see, though, in all cases, are you're going to see that end expiratory flow will not return to the baseline before the start of the next breath. This is just another way of seeing this, okay? Um, so that's a flow volume loop, and then you can even take it to a pressure volume loop, and you might see something like this, which is an incomplete loop, okay? So that's another... Uh, this, this, all of this provides you with evidence that the patient is um, <clears throat> breath stacking or having some degree of auto-peep. And there's multiple levels of uh, talking about intrinsic peep, auto-peep, dynamic hyperinflation. What I want to show you here is just a very simple, straightforward case. But what's the key point with this? This is great. You've diagnosed it. You guys picked it out right away. But what do you got to do about this? That's what's important, right? So what are you going to do for this patient? Disconnect the vent. Disconnect the vent. So I think that's a good answer. It's not, so uh, that's, that's the, that's, that is the classic answer. I think that's correct. And when you disconnect the vent, it's not just disconnect the vent, but preferably if they have hemodynamic monitoring, which they hopefully will, you should be observing the blood pressure to see if it's truly the ventilator that's causing that hypotension as well. You want to see if the blood pressure starts to improve. So I would say disconnect and observe very closely, okay? Um, I think one of the things that we see is sometimes when this happens, the tidal volume was just turned up too high. I think we've gotten a lot better with that, so, but we still see study after study where we have inappropriate tidal volumes, right? So and you had lectures on that in this, in this curriculum. So uh, always think about the tidal volume. Your sedation plan, I think that's always, almost always the answer is the patient probably wasn't sedated properly. Lots of different ways we can attack that. And also think about the IDE ratio. So... Um, we had a patient over the weekend who was a young trauma patient, and this was the problem we were dealing with. It was a real simple solution. We just had to increase the sedation a little bit. Uh, and then one of the things right away was to work on that I to E ratio a little bit, and that actually smoothed things out beautifully. So these are the simple things you can do up front for this problem.
But I would say we absolutely see it. Uh, I do believe in this. I've seen it. And um, I, maybe there's some non-believers out there, but I think this is absolutely a phenomenon that we have to be aware of. It's a, defi a definite patient-ventilator interaction that can seriously harm a patient. So here's another case. So two more cases, two more cardiac cases, all right? This is a patient now in the cardiac ICU, 18 years old, young, awaiting a heart transplant. This patient has an echo that shows a really, uh, really poor depressed LV function. The EF is around 20%. Patient gets intubated, put on milrinone, epinephrine, and then the follow-up echo as those uh, vasoactive meds are weaned down actually shows just a moderately depressed LV function. So uh, this patient's extubated, okay? 18 years old, looking better hemodynamically. Uh, this actually was an endocarditis, so hopefully that was getting better. Still needs a heart transplant, but the heart was getting better, so extubated. Patient was dying to be extubated. I mean, ready to just pull the tube out. We had to restrain him, you, you know, 18 years old. Did not want that tube in. So we did it, we did it. He met criteria, we extubated him. Two hours after, hypotensive, tachycardic, and modeled like you wouldn't believe. Horrible poor perfusion, cap refill, six, seven seconds. What might have happened with this patient? What do you think might have happened pathophysiologically with this patient? Lots of things, there's lots of things in the differential, but what's, what's the global, what, what, what might be one global thing we have to consider here? <laughs> yeah, you got it. I, I think that's what it was. That's what we think it was. Um, so, yeah, you know, I don't think this patient was not, by the way, this patient went on to have a heart transplant, had an excellent outcome. Um, this was before I came here to Maryland. But most likely this was a cause, this was caused by uh, an increase in the afterload, as you said. Did not tolerate that um, increase in afterload after extubation. That, to the best of our, our estimation, that's probably what happened with this patient. Because as soon as we got him on the ventilator, it wasn't like, oh, okay, our inotropes were weaned too aggressively. We were right back on the same doses, in fact, weaning those rapidly, okay? And he wasn't on ridiculous settings. Um, it was a regular, he was actually on pressure support, but that, that was enough for him to, that's what he needed. He needed that pressure support and PEEP to, to maintain um, that afterload reduction. And so anyway, eventually did very well, but this is, this is again just a review of this, that transmural pressure differential. When you go on mechanical ventilation, this is what happens. You wind up getting that positive pressure like that primitive video I showed you early, where you wind up decreasing that transmural pressure. The positive pressure ventilation can actually help you in the sense of reducing afterload by decreasing that differential. And in this case, I just show a 40-point difference, which is the classic um, Guyette paper that, that talked about this back in the 80s. Okay, what about this case? Here's a patient who's got uh, history of a liver transplant for amyloidosis, has a known cardiomyopathy, 25%. This patient had been on and off milrinone for weeks and, in fact, was going to go home on milrinone. So we see less of that now with VADs, right, and, and better uh, ways to support these patients. But we, at least this is about eight, nine years ago where we were still, we did discharge some patients on home milrinone, believe it or not. So do you still see that in your populations, anyone? Yeah, occasionally? Okay, so it's not unheard of. Um, but he, unfortunately, uh, was doing well, but then just developed really bad respiratory distress, got intubated, and became very hypotensive after intubation. So um, we, okay, so a couple things were 
there's a couple aspects of this case. I intubated this patient. I intubated this patient with a, a very a reasonable dose of etominate. Actually, we used a low dose of 0.1 mg per kg. And patient did get um, a neuromuscular blocker. That is true, okay? The transplant surgeon wanted to decapitate me, okay? You gave way too much anesthesia. This guy, you know, you probably could have just put the tube in without any meds. And that's what I would have done. Okay, fine. We can argue the literature on that all you want. You're, you don't do this, though. I do. I don't think it's my drugs. I really don't think it's my drugs. Let me prove it to you. So one of the fastest PA catheters I've ever put in. We don't do this very much anymore, but we did. We threw a PA cath in literally five minutes. Cordis, bam, PA cath, floated it in, and this is what we got. 60 over 42, PA pressure, cardiac output was low. So, you know, what, what might be going on in this case, do you think? Got it. You got it. Did everybody hear that? So we'll, we'll reiterate that. So right heart failure, it's a double-edged sword. The ventilator is a double-edged sword because uh, it can take away your preload, just like we showed in that animation. And I think that's exactly what happened here. This patient had high PA pressures, uh, most likely had some degree of right heart failure. Now, I will say, sadly enough, this was, this was a, while, a little bit of a while ago. We weren't using echo as much. I would argue that we can get a good grasp of this with throwing a probe on or, or even going to TE, which some of us are trying to do more and more in our practice. But either way, uh, we did it with a PA cath and just the clinical picture and knowing the patient's history. But exactly, this, this patient was already being trying to be, set this patient up for home, trying to tweak the diuresis to keep the fluid so that this, he wasn't too overloaded, but, but at the same time, not hypovolemic. He crashed on the ventilator, and almost certainly this is what we were dealing with. Because as soon as we gave some fluids back, he recovered quickly. And we went through the whole experiment of pressors and everything else, and uh, trying to tweak the vent a little bit to decrease the support. But really what, really, really what he needed was just some more fluid. So you're absolutely correct. Right heart failure, and the way I like to say with right heart failure is the right heart failure patient can be unbelievably preload dependent. And these are our hemodynamic goals with a patient in right heart failure. We want to make sure our preload is maintained. That doesn't mean we want to overshoot, but we definitely don't want to uh, dry them out to the bone because that can be very deleterious, especially when we do something like institute mechanical ventilation. Heart rate, we want to keep that normal to slow. Okay, afterload, we want to just maintain that. There's really no good reason to ever have increased pulmonary vascular resistance, so we always want to make sure that that's maintained or decreased if possible, okay? So uh, maintaining contractility. So those are our goals with right heart failure, but when you put somebody on the ventilator with this, you have to be cognizant, as somebody said in the audience, um, about their preload, because if you take that away abruptly, you will pay the price for that, okay? Last case, this is an easy one. All right, 75-year-old woman, and this, this, is, this is all bread and butter, but this is a patient who's, who we see, I feel like, more and more and more, right? 75 years old, needs an X-lap for a small bowel obstruction. Uh, very dyssynchronous with the ventilator postoperatively. The PAO2 66 on 70% FiO2, and the peak airway pressures are awfully high. Mid-40s, history of 60-pack years of smoking. So I don't think I need to tell you that this patient most likely, without knowing her gold COPD status, but she probably has a pretty bad COPD with a history like that. So let's, if, we're, if we're assuming this patient does have COPD, or if we know that, what are some of your goals uh, for a patient with COPD on mechanical ventilation? 
I think it's important because this, is, this, this comes back to patient ventilator interactions. Um, if we just dial in the regular settings we do for everyone else and try to normalize things, that's going to have bad effects, right? So for COPD, uh, there's a really good article by Coe, which I am happy to send to you, by the way. Uh, I can send that out in the circulation, but I think it's one of the best reviews of basic COPD vent management. And I know most of you know this really well, but these patients are especially prone to that problem of auto-peeping and dynamic uh, hyperinflation. So you got to be really cognizant of that. They will breath stack. Why do they breath stack so quickly? Why is that? You guys know this. Why do they breath stack so readily? What's the problem with COPD? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they, these are, they have a lot of non-participatory segments. They have a really hard time uh, exhaling. So we've got to give them time to do that. And if you just put them on regular old bread and butter vent settings, uh, you know, and they're fragile like this 76-year-old woman, and she starts to get desynchronous, you're going to run into a lot of problems. So, yes, um, that's exactly right. You remember, the, the, the pressure volume curve is on the upper flat portion. You wind up with more, you got your west zones here, diagram, pull that out of west physiology, but you remember that more west zones one and two, a um, little bit less perfused, more ventilated, but not perf well perfused, high alveolar pressures. And the narrow ET tube can also contribute to high peak airway pressures as well. The respiratory system compliance is not great. They have very insensitive triggering, and this results in ventilator dyssynchrony. So some of the things that they talk about in this co-article, which I really like are, and I think most of you know this, but you want to decrease your respiratory rate. That's one of the first things you can do, okay? Um, they recommend pressure, pressure control modes. I, you know, I feel strongly about that. I think as long as you know how to manipulate the mode you're comfortable with, as long as you can allow some degree of permissive hypercapnia. And I think the big thing that we see over and over and over, and I know you've seen this as well, is that um, people will try to normalize that ABG on these patients. That's the biggest error, I think, in managing a COPD or is normalizing, trying to normalize that ABG. You're okay with moderate acidemia, okay? Um, but if you start overventilating them and norm trying to normalize that ABG, then you're going to have all the consequences, both hemodynamic, not to mention um, in terms of oxygenation and ventilation, you're going to have problems. Now, PEEP is also something that you remember uh, is not, it may have been classically taught never to use PEEP or to use extremely low levels of PEEP. Five of PEEP or, or even a little bit more, um, if appropriately titrated, is actually quite good for these patients. It can help with triggering and synchrony, and there's, good, there's a good evidence base to support that. So I don't know, if, is that what you do in your practice? Do you add a little bit of PEEP to these patients? It's not zero PEEP for most of them, I would argue. You add a little bit of PEEP and titrate it in. All right. So that's all I got for you. Okay? So uh, hopefully what we've reviewed today is just some basic hemodynamic consequences of putting a patient on mechanical ventilation, namely positive pressure ventilation. And we talked about a couple specific instances of manipulating preload and afterload, what happens when we do that with patients that have underlying heart disease, as well as just a basic review of ventilator troubleshooting as well as uh, COPD management on the vent. So are there any questions? Ma'am. I'd love to hear your, um, your algorithm, your technique for interviewing known right heart failure. With known right heart failure, yeah. So uh, a couple things, going back to that one slide I had. So I'd like to have a free-flowing IV line. I'll, I'll be honest, what I, what I really try to do if we know that is get a probe on them if there's time. So where does that come into play? I'll tell you, in the CCRU when we get called up there, 
because uh, those patients will float in and we may have a questionable history of that. It's absolutely invaluable and thank goodness they almost always have the ultrasound machine right there. So I think ultrasound plays a huge role in all this. So throwing a probe on right away to try to see what's going on is number one, if you can. If you can't, then you just have to be judicious. So number one, having a large bore IV ready to go. And if you need to give a bolus, you give a bolus. Um, I think that can be invaluable. But these are the patients that I really am careful about how we intubate. Will I do an awake intubation on every person with right heart failure? No, but will I start to pick maybe some different meds to induce them like remifentanil or will I use maybe a fentanyl, a higher dose fentanyl pre-induction? Um, ketamine can work quite well. The problem with ketamine though is you don't want them to get too tachycardic. So that can sometimes be bad with ketamine. So usually the way we induce them is volume status assessed, make sure we have a good line to give them volume if, if needed. And actually, it's not uncommon if I'm actually pushing the drugs, I'll keep the probe with one hand and, and I'll be able to go back and forth and actually see the dynamic changes right in front of me, which is really helpful, extraordinarily helpful. And then using a very bland hemodynamic agent. Atomidate can be perfectly acceptable for these patients. I would not use propofol on them. I would not use propofol on a right heart failure patient, even a small dose. I think you're just begging for trouble with that. It takes away your SVR. Even it, I've seen it happen with one to two mils, 10 to 20 milligrams of propofol. It's a known side effect of that drug. Um, so I don't know if that helps. And then do you need to paralyze them or not? So this is a broader question. I know there's one colleague in particular who used, came to this program is actually doing an RCT on uh, paralytic facilitated versus non-paralytic. I know there's people in this institution that feel very strongly that you do not need paralytics to intubate. Um, I showed you some literature that suggests that you have a higher uh, propensity for hypotension. So it's, it's really a judgment call whether or not you're gonna use the paralytic. Um, I believe the majority of evidence does show that that does optimize your first pass success rate. That's what I believe and I have literature to back that up, but this is the one where you have to think about the hemodynamic consequences. So I don't know if that answers your question a little bit though. They're tricky patients though, aren't they? I mean, they can, they can just take a dive on you really quickly. Right heart failure is really a struggle to deal with sometimes, I think, so. All right, well, we went a little longer than I thought we would, but, uh, but that's good. I'll see you, see you folks up on the, uh, in the ICU. Thank you. <laughs>